0: Hello and welcome to episode number 303 of the Armin Show podcast, where it has been interesting and wonderful, but now it gets special because on this episode, we don't have one guest. We don't have even two. There are three, which makes a total of four individuals here because I am here, your host, Armin Shirvanian. Glad to have you on here. On this episode, we have not only wonderful guests, but a theme, chance meetings, the people you meet along your life and maybe they fork you in a certain direction and help with your personal growth. We'll be covering a little bit of what people meant as far as how they helped you grow, guide your decision-making, and it'll be nice to see some past guests on as well. On this episode, we have three guests. I will go clockwise. We have Dr. Azra Raza from Columbia University, oncologist, author of The First Cell, The human costs of and the human costs of pursuing cancer to the last an approach for cancer treatment. She's the Chan Soon Xiong Professor of Medicine and Director of the Milo Dysplastic Syndrome Center at Columbia. Glad to have you on the show, Dr. Raza.
1: Thank you for having me, Armin.
0: Always glad to, with all the books. And we also have Dr. Bill. Sullivan, Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology and Microbiology and Immunology at the Indiana University School of Medicine, author of Please to Meet Me, a book that has spread around quite a bit. And it is a switch on Please to Meet You and it's genes, germs, and the curious forces that make us who
2: we are. Bill, glad to have you on the show. It's a delight to be here. Congratulations on your Milestone of 300 episodes. Supportive individual out here. These are the people I want to be around in life.
0: Thank you, by the way. And lastly, we have Professor Dan Cable of London Business School. His book, Exceptional, Build Your Personal Highlight Reel and Unlock Your Potential. We spoke about that. It slightly reminded me of my personal development articles back in 2009, 10 and 11. Dan, glad to have you back on the show. And you're coming from London, right, Dan?
3: London, that's right. In Kentish Town. Sleepy little Kentish Town.
0: Right. We have London, we have Indiana, we have New York, and then I'm in Los Angeles. This is wonderful. Now, so chance meetings, the people we've met along the way. First, I would like to go to Dr. Azra Raza. Along the way, now I have met you also in person, which was great, which connects definitely with the concept of chance meetings and met multiple people at a gathering you hosted. This is very valuable and it expands our mind. That was very cool. Who are some people or who is a person along the way who has directed you in some form that made a substantial difference in your career or personal growth?
1: thank you armand and uh, such a pleasure to be here with bill and and dan and i'm palpitating to hear their stories now <laughs> more than telling my own uh, but listen i'm the author of two books and both of them have actually are the results more or less of chance meetings so the first one as you mentioned is the first self uh, but my other book is called Epistemologies of Elegance. And it is about poetry. So uh, I don't, I'm not just uh, the, um, uh, the dry and depressing oncologist. And both books resulted out of chance. Uh, but to begin with, I want to just say that this whole concept of uh, chance making a difference in your mind really goes back to what Louis Pasteur said in 1850s. Chance strikes a prepared mind. We meet so many people by chance, so many things happen by serendipity. But the one that made a difference mm. had to be uh, to be making the difference because we were prepared for it, and that it provided the last catalyst or stimulus for doing so. So, do you want me to tell you this uh, first brief story about how I um, wrote the first cell? That'd be great. So I was, uh, uh, I had just finished my fellowship at uh, in oncology and hematology at Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo uh, in the early 80s. And um, I met a woman who had uh, come with a, uh, this, this gorgeous 34-year-old African-American woman who gave a very interesting history that... Um, Two years before coming to see me, she had uh, become uh, pregnant. And during pregnancy, she developed a a fetish to smell gasoline. So every day, this woman during her nine months of pregnancy would walk to the corner gas station, buy a dime's worth of gasoline and sniff it all day. Hmm. At the end of her... uh, 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 full-term gestation she del- delivered a set of beautiful twin girls and then six months later her blood counts dropped and another six months later she developed the disease that I was studying and treating acute myeloid leukemia but you know what she was hysterically funny I was 32 at the time she was 34 and we bonded somehow in such a way uh, that she made uh, she, she really made a huge impression. She became tattooed on my cerebrum. And I would just like to read a couple of things that happened with her, like, um, weary and exhausted after a long day at work, I would find my way like an addict to her room at the end of my working day, for example. One evening I arrived in her room, she handed me the jello she had been saving from her tray and said, are you always on call? And before I could say anything, she roared with laughter. Of course you are, you are an oncologist. <laughs> Death bound, she remained irrepressible. She gagged and puked and wretched and carried on with rampant good cheer. They're looking for pneumonia in my lungs like it's buried treasure, she would laugh. I had a lot of notions today, but no motions. Can you help me? Um, Dr. Raza, my mother-in-law has only one problem, breathing. She also has a strange growth on her neck, her head. I mean, there was nothing that this woman would take seriously. She was so funny and she took everything with good cheer. We treated her. She entered remission, but of course it didn't last for long. We gave her a transplant, didn't work. And when she was dying, Armin, she asked me to admit her for her final days to the hospital. And I did. And suddenly I saw that she was writing something every day. And finally, I had the courage to ask her, JC, what is it you're writing? And the answer she gave me changed my life forever. She said, well, I'm writing letters that I want my twin daughters to open on each of their birthdays. She said, I've reached their 12th. Can you keep me alive till I reach their 21st? And of course, I couldn't keep her alive. And she died a very tormented death. And as I signed her death certificate, I said to my husband, Harvey, that, listen, I have been an idiot. We should have treated her disease when she had developed pre-leukemia before it developed into acute leukemia because the earlier we treat the better it should be that's the only good news we give to a cancer patient Mm Sarman that you have cancer but good news we can treat you because we it's diagnosed early and so from that day on in 1984 I turned my full attention to studying pre-leukemia and following these patients in the natural history of their disease as they either developed acute leukemia or died of their pre-leukemia. And this chance meeting, I mean, she could have been assigned to anybody else, but the point is that that chance meeting that uh, decided the entire trajectory of my life. And from that moment on in 1984, I started also saving blood and bone marrow samples on my patients. So today I have the world's largest tissue repository of 60,000 samples of bone marrow and blood longitudinally obtained as patients go through their disease from diagnosis to death by leukemia or death by bone marrow failure. Both the things, that is my Dedication to pre leukemia and early detection of cancer, resulting in this book called The First Cell, which tells JC's story, and my collection of tissue samples through which we have made tremendous biologic insights into cancer, are the result, I think, of chance.
0: That makes sense and is a very impactful story in this concept because that one individual, maybe if they weren't there, who knows, now you are doing some sort of alternate research, organic molecules for all I know. That's separate, but valid point. And it is through people that sometimes we get our motivation or inspiration because before we ran into them, we may have been not as aimful. And then we see somebody's challenge or difficulty or maybe something they want to be doing or a goal they have. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute. We can support this in some way or I have what they don't have. So I can uh, put my effort in, in relation to that. That's an impactful story there. Sometimes when I think of, there's different levels of chance meetings because that's highly impactful. Some of mine were like, I met somebody and it just impacted something I did for the next couple of weeks. And so that's a smaller uh, type of chance meeting. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that one. Now I will swing it around from there to Professor Bill Sullivan, what is a meeting of yours that directed you in some form?
2: Well, it's really hard to pinpoint that down to just one person, because as Osra said, there are so many chance encounters that occur in your life. And many of those, you don't recognize the importance until long after. So I thought I would give you Um, just a few quick stories of a chain of people that led me uh, to publish my book, the one you spoke about earlier, Please to Meet Me, just kind of a reintroduction to the self so that people can better understand personality and behavior and the biological underpinnings that give rise to various um, traits and uh, beliefs. So I'll, I'll start back in college uh when I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my life I uh I had that double-edged sword uh curse you could say where I was interested in everything but you know just didn't have a clear passion for one thing in particular I liked the arts I liked music but I also liked science you know I liked everything from biology to cosmology But um, my first chance encounter I'd like to highlight is a fellow named Dr. William Vale. He was a microbiology professor uh, at my undergraduate college. And I didn't have any preconceptions or interests in uh, microbiology per se. I really didn't appreciate what that field was about, but he really sparked my interest in learning about things that we can't see. You know, there's a whole universe that is a, know, that doesn't register through our naked eye uh, that we can, you know, access through microscopes or other other pieces of equipment. And uh, it just really isn't just interesting from a scientific point of view, but also from a philosophical point of view. There's so many things we can't see in this life uh, that influence us in very subtle or profound ways. So he, he was a professor that turned my interests into microbiology and got me thinking that maybe I want to be a doctor. Maybe I should go to med school. And um, I told him that thinking he would be very happy because I was also thinking about arts, you know, the arts. And um, I thought he would be happy. He gave me this very strange look and he goes, you want to be a doctor? And I'm like, yeah, I think that would be, that would be interesting. I'd like to help people, cure people. And He's like, what do you want to be a plumber for, you know? And he was referring to the fact that there's a whole nother side of the discipline that I wasn't considering, which is research. Um, Now, I I don't necessarily agree or condone his comments, especially if there's any surgeons listening. I need you to be on your toes. If I uh, need to be in your operating room one day, I do not share his view that uh, doctors are simply Uh, biological plumbers, but I get the message he was sending. And in his own way, he was trying to communicate to me that you should consider research that's, you know, biomedical research, you know, that's the type of things that can maybe discover uh, techniques or medications or scientific principles that one day doctors will use, you know, in, in their art of curing people and alleviating suffering. So he not only got me interested in microbiology, which is what I study to this day, but he also got me interested in research itself or else I might've been, you know, became a physician. So then I went to graduate school and found out that biomedical research is incredibly hard. It's a lot harder than I ever thought it would be, you know, more than I could imagine. And uh, being a plumber looked pretty attractive at that point. But I I, um, stuck with it enough to get a master's degree, okay, at the University of Pennsylvania. And I was going to then pursue other career options. I was going to call it quits there and um, look into other uh, positions. But there was, again, another faculty member, Yvonne Patterson, who was instrumental in getting me to realize that I should try for a PhD and continue research. I just didn't find the right lab uh, that was agreeable for me. Mm-hmm. And she encouraged me to meet the final fellow I'm going to tell you about, who was David Roos, my research mentor. Very eccentric, interesting, funny guy. And uh, he was unlike any of the other professors that I had worked with uh, previously. And um, also different to them, he, he also had a lab that was thriving with students and postdoc trainees who were smiling and listening to music and genuinely enjoying themselves. All the other lab experiences I've had up to that point were not like that at all. Uh, They were very stark and, uh, you know, intensely serious. And there was no element of fun. Uh, It was just pure anxiety and stress all the way. That wasn't in David's lab, it was much, much better. And it suited, I think my personality and where I was at that point in my career development, my intellectual development. He was a mentor that took the time to sit down with me on a daily basis and help me understand what was going on, how to dissect the experiments and critically think and problem solve. Um, So that was a chance encounter that not only reignited my interest in research but he introduced me to the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, the single-celled parasite that I study to this day in my own lab. Uh, I found it an endlessly fascinating parasite. I've written about it in the book. For those of you who haven't heard of this parasite, it's actually infected one third of the world. So we're talking billions of people carry this parasite in their heads and they don't even know about it, which sounds incredibly unsettling. That's a, lot um, of <laughs> that's a lot of chance meetings. a lot of chance meetings. Enormous um, number. <laughs> and the reason why so many people are infected is because it's so easily transmitted. Um, uh, it has multiple routes of transmission. You can get it from cats. You can get it from undercooked meats. You can get it from unwashed vegetables, contaminated water, all sorts of different routes of infections. Once you get it in you, You can't get the parasite out, there's no no cure, your immune system doesn't get rid of it, but it doesn't seem to do any harm in normal healthy people. When it becomes a problem is when people become immune compromised, Um, but there are emerging studies that suggest, uh, and this is one of the elements we study in my lab in rodent models, is that this parasite, even though it's in a latent form in the brain, can predispose individuals to a variety of neuropsychoses, including, including schizophrenia, rage disorder and um, risk taking. Uh, So all of that was the seed of my book um, because it's another unseen thing, another entity that we don't perceive with our eye that has infected billions of people on the planet and could potentially be influencing our behavior in ways that are completely off of our radar. And those are the types of things that I describe in my book uh, that um, I think it's important for us to learn about in order to understand ourselves better and importantly, understand how people who aren't like us uh, believe or act the way that they do.
0: Hmm. It's connected in that way. It's almost there's an unseen connection that happens between people separate from parasites that also is happening globally and if we don't keep track of it, we'll never see how people got to where they are. But if we watch, maybe we see, okay, that person met that person and then, okay, they went there, then they realized this, then this was a challenge that went over there, steps along the way. That is cool. I like the story connection too. Now, we have also Professor Dan Cable here, who his book, talks about building the highlight reel of our existence this is part of my highlight reel of my existence dan what is an element where a person guided you in some form in this way in relation to your path that comes to mind today
3: um i was going to tell i guess kind of a a funny story that was really rough at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I was doing core research at the University of North Carolina. there in the business school. And what I'm remembering is, this is about 15, 18 years ago now, I remember that I saw myself as kind of a pure researcher, meaning didn't really matter to me if anybody read what I was publishing. It, it was just almost a publisher parish mindset where I learned how to do that really well. So the job was just to get on with doing it. And um, we hired this dean, his name was Steve, and we hired him out of um, McKinsey, which is like a consulting firm. And it was the first time in my life that we had a non-academic as our dean. He was basically a manager. Um, And he had this one really tough conversation with me, and this is the chance meeting that I wanted to share with you, where he called me in and he pointed to a bunch of papers on my Vita that said, he said, these really aren't top journals. And I'm just wondering, why are you publishing in journals that aren't top journals? And I thought he just didn't understand. And my my attitude, which was, I think, a little arrogant at the time, because I thought, oh, he just doesn't understand, was like, oh, well, this one, for example, this took me almost three years to gather the data and to write it and then to finally get it published. And I wasn't able to get it in the top journals, but I I still think it's a good piece of science. And he kind of cut me off in a really harsh way. And he said, listen, if you want to publish in these smaller journals, you can do it like as a hobby, but like, I just want you to know that like, I don't value it and the school doesn't value it. And my, my, my jaw kind of dropped, like I was really upset. I remember it was like a shock and um, I'd never been spoken to that way. It was a, usually I was quite celebrated for my, for my publications. And so <laughs> I, I looked at him and I was really listening. I was really listening. I was very opened to this way that he was talking, although it was very harsh at the time. And I said, what do you you mean? And he said, well, as the Dean, my job is to create impact. You know, what, what we're trying to do is the ideas don't really matter and the publications don't really matter unless they have an impact, unless people are... And it's interesting, that really rough edged conversation which kind of upset me for many weeks, maybe even months, it planted a real seed about why I was doing research. Like what was it for? And I'm embarrassed to admit, I, <laughs> I didn't really think enough about it. I was I was publishing things I was interested in, mind you, but it, I didn't mind if it went anywhere. It just, that wasn't important to me. And this guy essentially put me on a path to rethinking why I do research. And it actually has led to all my books. It, it's led to the way that I now approach um, why I do what I do. And it it's basically like try to help people put more living into life and try to get the word out there as big as I can. It's even why I would be on this show. I would have never come on a podcast at that point because it wouldn't have helped my research. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Arvin, I really, I like that idea of chance meetings because I sure didn't want that one. you know. <laughs> but I have to say it kind of, ultimately open my mind and put me on a path
0: that makes sense sometimes it's not always what we're planning for that is best for us or can guide us it's almost the unplanned things we can't plan everything or else what a weird existence that might be if everything is completely ordered then what would we be doing we're just mm-hmm. following a process of some form i like the concept these things guide our life very strongly i now have A follow-up question to that and going in counterclockwise form is we have these chance meetings. This is one thing that came up. I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. How does one put themselves in a place to have more of these or more beneficial ones of these types of meetings in the first place? Is there anything that can lead to that or is it out of our hands, Uh, starting with Professor Dan Cable and then we'll go. Counterclockwise.
3: Great. Great. Well, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I think you might want to ask my partner, um, because I I have put myself in a lot of chance meetings because I find it kind of intrinsically satisfying to give people little jolts or little little bumps of energy. It's something that I, I I'm just an extrovert. I think I'm just an extrovert. It probably has something to do with dopamine. I don't know, but I um I love giving people little lifts of energy and so in almost every interaction you know like ordering a beer at a pub or after a class if somebody wants to ask a question i find that if i really put myself there and i have to be pretty intentional about it because we're all so busy so there's often a little nibble saying you have things to do but i'm kind of able to shut that one off sometimes and be like let me actually listen and be present and sort of give that little jolt And for me, that has been, um, well, it's been fun, but I do think that it has also led to loads of really stimulating, interesting insights because everybody has them. You know, everybody has like a pretty cool frame on life if you listen. So anyway, that's something that I uh, intentionally do and try to get a little buzz out of people while I'm giving a little bump or a little buzz as well.
0: I share that quality and I will throw myself in here because in the counterclockwise, I'm also there. I like to have interactions with people, let's say in public or a little a bump of energy. And the more I'm doing things that I like, the more I'm likely to meet individuals where the, the meeting will have substantial impact on my life versus if I am you know, coping in some way versus thriving, let's say, then the chance of having a valuable meeting happening is much lower because I'm already in the wrong place. Anyway, that's one thing that comes to mind. Professor Bill Sullivan, how about yourself? What are your thoughts on uh, putting yourself in a better place to meet people who can have a substantial impact?
2: Yeah, I I think that's a great question, Armin, because um, as all three of us illustrated, uh, much of what we've achieved or accomplished has been the result of things that were completely out of our control. You know, chance encounters um, of different chains of people that lead one thing to another. But I do believe, um, uh, to again uh, quote the great Louis Pasteur, chance favors the prepared mind. So even though these are chance encounters, if your mind is prepared prior to any encounter that you may experience, or encounters that you try to um, put together yourself, you, you prepare your mind and put yourself in the best position, extract as much value out of any interaction that you might have. And building off of what, um, uh, off what Dan was just saying. And um, I'll put myself out there as kind of the, the opposite of Dan, uh, being an introvert. Okay, I'm, I'm much more introverted than I am extroverted. I mean, I can extrovert with the best of them, but I find it exhausting uh, afterwards. <laughs> um, and I just need some you know, time to recover from that experience. Uh, but I, I'd like to reassure that uh, all the other introverts out there that you can still have plenty of chance encounters. Um, there's an abundance of them available on social media forums uh, and, and online clubs and things of that nature. So I I think, um, and especially the, you know, what the whole COVID-19 shutdown has taught us that there are many different ways to gain um, encounters with people, um, strangers and friends alike uh, through other media besides just physically going out and meeting people. Um, So some of the introverts like me find that a much easier way uh, to engage uh, with audiences. And um, the other piece of uh, advice and reassurance I'd like to give, and this has not only proved true in the social arena, in in meeting folks that might open you to new ideas or facilitate your career or help you grow as a person, uh, it's been wonderful for science. And that's the art of collaboration, trying to bridge different disciplines together that don't talk often. um, That is usually the secret to discovery and revelation. And you see this in many books that are published as well. When people synthesize ideas that seem to be separate, but they connect the dots in a very unique way with like this bird's eye perspective. And they see how things are interrelated. Um, That is where many scientific breakthroughs come from. But I believe it's also where many breakthroughs in our growing as a person come from. When we get exposed to Um, different people, different beliefs, different cultures and ideas that we've never really experienced before. Embracing those with a curiosity and an open mind um, is a wonderful opportunity for growth.
0: Mm -hmm. Before we move on to Dr. Azraza, I wanted to ask, you mentioned uh, introverted, are you more likely to be introverted with those who are not as within your framework? and more extroverted with those you already uh, mesh well with? Is there something there?
2: Uh, Yeah, I guess that's fair to say. With people who are close friends or we have a lot in common, it's very easy uh, for me um, to get together and socialize with that particular group. I feel very comfortable. I don't have any filters or guards. Uh, It's fine. Um, But yeah, and when I'm around a lot of people who I'm not familiar with, uh, they're there's a fair amount of anxiety that goes on in your head before you say or utter anything. And, and, you know, uh, I admire the people who are bold enough who can just launch into uh, whatever they're thinking uh, or to go out there and be able to wow a crowd with a bunch of great stories and jokes. Um, I just don't feel uh, prepared enough to do that in a crowd of strangers because I guess I perceive a lot of um, evaluation coming my way. And that, that might be what's underlying my hesitation there. But like I said, I can get up in front of a crowd of thousands and talk about my, my book or my research. It's perfectly fine.
0: Just the reason why I followed up there is sometimes I think about what kinds of material we don't see in public or in discourse because of internal filters of some degree. And I just think about like, we're losing this percentage of this person's thoughts and concerns and feelings. So I like to see everybody in full bloom, I might say. That's cool. Now, Dr. Azra Raza, in this concept, what is a way to put yourself in a position where you're having more beneficial meetings or can that be done?
1: Very deliberately is my answer, (laughs) and I'll tell you why. First, I want to comment on uh, what uh, Dan said. Uh, Dan, there's a very famous uh, Nietzsche saying, which I presume you'll know as soon as I say it, but really applies to the story you gave, which delighted me. Um, Nietzsche says something like, he who has a why to live for will always find the how. Do it, and I, I like think it. that's uh, Victor Frankel's the same message about finding meaning in life. So beautiful, so beautiful. Yeah, and and Bill, I couldn't agree more with you about uh, making the effort to actually um, allow chance to and 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 um, not just chance luck to enter our life, so to say, can be done deliberately. So. I came from Pakistan, I arrived in Buffalo, New York, not the garden spot of the world in nine, uh, in the dead of winter, the blizzard of 77. I was very young, um, and had separated from my family, of course, etc, back home. But something that I've always found great refuge in is poetry. And the reason is I come from a culture that's a very oral culture, we were made to memorize and recite poetry constantly as kids, not just in Urdu and Persian, but in English as well. So I made a little club Armand, in Buffalo, where um, I decided to choose the greatest poet from South Asia, his name is Ghalib, um, who wrote particularly difficult things like Finnegan's Wake. Who has ever read Finnegan's Wake? But the kind of uh, difficult poetry where in 25 words or less, he has managed to address the, uh, say the existential angst of humanity along with a very deep romantic love. And you have to figure out what and how. So I had like 11 different interpretations I would keep in front of me and we started doing this. But then I said, why not invite people who are really experts on some of these issues and have them come to my home and simply talk about uh, some of this. I made a deliberate effort, especially encouraged by Machiavelli, who has said something to the effect also that it should be every person's duty to meet the most interesting people of your time. And you know, as soon as I had any little money spared after my residency and fellowship, I started spending that money in providing people tickets to fly over to Buffalo, New York and participate in my literary circles. And I continued this for 20 years and I continued reading that one poet for 20 years. Every week we finished the entire uh, anthology three times. And finally, I felt like, okay, now I'm ready to write the book on him. Because after even 11 different interpretations, I always felt I had something new to say about it. But I just, you know, how doctors are, didn't have time, wasn't getting. And in during this period, one day, uh, I was living now in Cincinnati, and there was this great Mapplethorpe exhibit that was happening. And I decided to use that as an attractant to invite one of the professors of English at Yale whose book I had just read who was an amazing Professor Sarah Goodyear. She was um, an amazing uh, writer meatless days her book had just come out so I invited her to Cincinnati saying we will go to the Mapplethorpe exhibit and see it together and things and so she came over. and. This is so amazing, Armand. Uh, during our con- we, we had the evening with her to which I had invited, of course, like 50 people. Next morning, we were talking about one couplet and she said something that immediately struck me as, oh my God, this is the person I should try to write the book with. And that's what I asked her immediately. And she also was, uh, by then, um, quite intrigued by me and all the things I had been doing to, uh, in addition to being on, an oncologist. And she said, sure, it took us another 20 years because then life intruded and, you know, how things happened. My husband got cancer. Uh, I became pregnant, had a little baby, then my husband dies. And then, you know, finally I moved right next door to, um, Yale because I became, uh, the head of oncology at university of Massachusetts. And then we had a chance 20 years after that chance meeting to start working together. And then that's the result. Uh, The result is this book, Ghalib Epistemologies of Elegance. And the idea here is a very deeply uh, Eastern poet. uh, And we, uh, because uh, of course Sarah has a Western sensibility, I have the Eastern sensibility. We brought to it a very different perspective and then I realized just during this lockdown, and I'll end here, uh, during this lockdown, I realized I read this uh, gorgeous thing by Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. Like lightning to the children, eased with explanation kind the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind and that's exactly the message of a couplet by ghalib so i decided to do a literary thing which i do quite often on comparing Emily Dickinson and Ghalib because they were contemporaries, but of course, uh, one is living in India, the other is living in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, nothing in common, yet the universal themes that they are addressing are all the same. So at that point, one of my friends, uh, Michael Auerbach, who had read my book, uh, The First Cell said, oh, this book is full of poetry by Emily Dickinson. I know the best scholar of poetry, of Emily Dickinson. And her name is Sharon Cameron, sending you her book. I read her book, I was completely ravished by it. And I wrote to Sharon saying, you know, you are a professor at Hopkins. I'm doing this program on Ghalib and Emily Dickinson. She became interested. Then it turned out she lives in New York. Guess what? We are best friends now. We see each other all the time. We talk Ghalib and Emily Dickinson, who knows where our third book will be. But you know, these things just by chance happening all the time has been so amazing. We marvel. Sharon and I having dinner the other day, we marveled and said, Look how we even met, but how we have, well, we have connected. So, in other words, my point answering you is, well, How do I put myself in a place where I'll have meetings by chance? You create those possibilities. I did it because I invested all my spare money in inviting people, paying for their tickets, paying for their hotels to come and stay and give me some of their time and getting to know the most interesting minds of our time.
0: You invested in the category. That makes sense. If we don't invest in something, we're not putting our weight behind it. It's like our internal energy. And then if we're not putting our internal energy behind something, it's like we're indirectly saying we don't value it the universe then matches that and it'll say, okay, so you don't value it. So that doesn't happen. But then if you do, in a big investment way, having people actually come over and pay for their lodging, let's say, then it tells the world, okay, this is what I value and I'll bring more of that to myself. That's a nice message for the people that want to build that. That's cool. One thing I wanted to conclude this episode on is checking with each of you about uh, how you are in the current moment of the middle of 2021 and things you may be working on. I will start with Professor Bill Sullivan, and then I'll go clockwise.
2: I'm, I'm at a point of cautious optimism. Uh, Being in an infectious disease unit, um, I've been pretty close to watching the whole COVID-19 unfold and been writing some articles and doing podcasts about uh, various aspects of um, the the pandemic. And uh, even though there are some areas of the world that are still um, intensely struggling um, in catastrophic ways, uh, there are other areas of the world that you can start to see some normalcy coming about, um, United States being one of them. And um, it it appears that uh, many of the countries that are uh, surmounting this hurdle are in position and making some um, uh, inroads to helping other countries uh, get over this horrible uh, affliction as well. So with the vaccines that are on board now and the improved um, uh, diagnostics and methods of treatment, I believe we're gonna emerge out of 2021 in a relative state of normalcy uh, which is going to be of a great relief to many people. Uh, So I'm cautiously optimistic that all of that's going to happen and um, hopefully the the world will you know learn from this lesson uh, that we've experienced in not only uh, better financing research and increased vigilance towards emerging infectious diseases um, and and greater attention to the research pipeline uh, because uh, we, we really should not have had to endure this. The, the, the coronavirus reared its ugly head for the first time, you know, back in the early 2000s. And scientists have been saying, this is gonna happen. This, this is not a question of if, it's a question of when. And nobody listened, um, so, well, very few people listened. Uh, but we're facing challenges like that all the time. You know, scientists have been raging about climate change for decades now, very little is being done. Uh, The issue of gun violence in this country, uh, research is there, but nothing's being done. The issue of lead um, creating aggression uh, in certain cities, you know, in in contaminating the water and, and so on. All these issues that are being raised by the scientists, I would hope and I'm fighting that those messages get out there and some action actually occurs. So we don't have to pay trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to fix the problem that we saw coming. So I hope that uh, that is the lesson we learn forward as we emerge out of 2021 and get over this pandemic.
0: That's a great point. I like that concept because let's say with scientists, there'll be a lot of work done for many years and much of the public will not really pay much attention to that category. And then once it suddenly builds into something that's very substantially right there, then epidemiologists and immunologists are the most popular people of the last year. And then once let's say it's taken care of, then what scientists who, and then back to more um, common discussion until if something else shows up and there's too much of some other issue, where are the scientists to deal with it? It's kind of entertaining cycle of sorts. Professor Dan Cable, We are in the middle of 2021 how are you feeling at this time Uh, any projects and uh thoughts as we go towards the second half of the year
3: one of the things that i'm really intrigued by is this whole work from home thing if i if i had to say how i'm feeling right now i'm kind of intrigued to see how we go back to work and i don't want to overplay this because i don't really know but this one of the shocks has been watching how big businesses and all businesses don't really need the people to commute in very much, or at least most of the people don't have to go in most of the days and everything kind of still works. And that's really intriguing. And a lot of the, um, like the leaders that I'm talking with right now aren't sure what to do with that. A, a lot of the very old school ones assume that they want everybody back in And I think that's a control thing. I think that that's sort of like, um, it's comfortable for them. It might even be a way to like protect their power base because that's the way it's always been done. But I think a lot of the smarter organizations are saying, who is that benefiting? And what are the best ways to work going forward? And I gotta tell you, that's a big deal. I mean, it's not something that we're talking about so much but for the first time since whatever, 1900, when we kind of invented management and everybody had to start going into factories, we're actually testing that model and saying, we probably actually don't have to go in that often. So for me going forward, uh, we've got about a year to figure this out because I think uh, what Bill's saying is there's a lot of optimism that things are going to open and people can go back to work. That is to say, go back to working together in an office, but there is an open question as to what serves the employees, what serves the organization, what serves the customers best.
0: I noticed that in moments of, let's say, a breakdown, that's when the big changes that may have been building for a few years, it's now time to make an adjustment on them. Until that breakdown happens, we'll just keep things going as they are. But then when there's those moments of, we'll call it, that that punctuated equilibrium, then it's like, okay, let's adjust. So there's like a period of buildup, and then Mm -hmm. it has to occur, and then a change. Yeah, fair point. And lastly, Dr. Raza, middle of 2021, how are you feeling? Maybe a project being worked on or how do you feel going into the rest of the year?
1: It's another one of uh, Emily Dickinson's very subversive uh, verse. She says, faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see How subversive is this line? Faith is a fine invention if gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. (laughs) So basically what has happened to us in the last year has uh, I think clarified so many things. It served as an X-ray to look at all the fractures in our, our systems. And so it has also opened up opportunities. As soon as we went into lockdown, even an old person like me got introduced to Zoom. And immediately I realized that, oh, I have been um, a a sole voice saying all this time that the only way to treat cancer and cure it is to prevent it instead of chasing after end-stage disease, which is like taking a heart destroyed by a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, and trying to now fix it with a coronary artery bypass surgery or a stent. It's not going to work. The only way to treat cancer is to find it early and get rid of it. Well, how early? The earliest possible. Mammograms are not detecting the earliest possible. PSA is not detecting. We got to go to the first cell. So I said, why am I the lone voice saying it? I created a think tank, 30 top leaders from academia and industry, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Dana-Farber at Harvard, Hopkins, University of Chicago, Columbia, um, Northwestern, I mean, the top places in the country. Um, and thankfully, I have colleagues everywhere, and I basically called them and said, look, either you tell me I'm there's a fatal flaw in my logic about early detection and going after the first cell, or sign on to this revolution. And everyone had to sign on. <laughs> and so then we had 17 two-hour long meetings, which is no easy task, believe me, because Most of them feel they are halfway to pick up their Nobel Prize anyway. So, but we were able to, because of Zoom, because of all this lockdown, had all these meetings and wrote an opinion paper, which basically concluded that we need to go after the first cell and early detection in the coming 10 years for cancer. We published it just in January uh, with all these 30 people as co-authors in Scientific American. And basically, the final thing we understood, which I proposed, is that in order to find the first cell, because cancer is a silent killer, by the time you diagnose it, for most people, it's at least stage one disease. Even that has billions of cells in it. So how do you find the first cell? Well, by monitoring people who don't have cancer yet, but are at high risk of getting cancer. Who are these people? There are a number of groups, like smokers with pulmonary disease are at higher risk than a normal population, or some genetic problems like Lou Frumani syndrome, Lynch syndrome, or BRCA1 or 2 mutations. Those individuals have a higher risk. But another group, Armand, is people who have had one cancer can be at higher risk of another. So all I'm saying is why not establish centers where people are coming who have had one cancer keep coming for checkups for follow-ups. We just draw very non-invasive things. Take some saliva, take a sample of their urine and feces and a few cc's of blood. And we keep looking for the earliest footprints of cancer. And do you know what? All the institutions I brought together through the think tank have signed in on this. We can collect these samples because patients are coming anyway. I'm saying that thanks to this pandemic, thanks to this chance that happened, suddenly a consensus has built around finding early cancer and a means of finding early cancer in people who are at risk for it. And I am standing here to make this prediction that within the next 10 years, entire healthcare system is going to turn around, to go from being reactive medicine to proactive, from trying to cure end-stage diseases to trying to prevent just what Bill was saying earlier also about all the things that we see but are not doing anything about it. Well, this thing, this pandemic has forced us to take the blinders off and actually look at what's there and do something about it. So that's my plan to cure cancer within the next few years by preventing it.
0: I like that focus on proactivity i think about that like in the creation and consumption category consumption is just happening to you and then your creation is your effort and putting your place out there one of them takes effort and it's sort of like the scientists we talked about earlier they're using all their prefrontal cortex decision making and processing and that's proactive versus things happen and then I have to treat this uh, symptom and then this disease along the way and then this and this and this. But if the original individual had been more of a effort-based uh, individual towards life as it comes to them, then you don't end up in the responsiveness cycle. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I would like to thank you all for having been on this episode of the show discussing chance meetings a great opportunity i'm very glad to have been part of it as well and maybe in the future things of this nature can continue but glad to have had you all on this episode of the show
3: nice to meet you both and thank you armin
2: same page. have, have, have a
3: to great you. afternoon evening for me <laughs>
2: Yes, this has been a real thrill um, hearing these wonderful minds speak and, and Armin, you tied it all together beautifully. I'm walking away with this with a renewed um, uh, commitment to the Stoic philosophy where, yeah, there's a lot of chance things that happen in our lives, but there's a lot of chances we can create for ourselves as well.
0: I like it. And for this one, it is a special version of my classic ending and we are